when you're in the United States Senate and you're a president of the United States and you have 50 Democrats, every one is a president. <laughs> every single one. No. So you gotta oh, work no, no, no. Out. No, that's not how it works. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California, on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP. Rochester, New York, WRFZ. New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, in Seattle, Washington, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the Globe, five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman with an assist from Desi Doyen of bradblog.com. But today you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show, based at nicolesandler.com. Your trusty, regular guest host, filling in for Brad and Desi, usually when they need me, like today. And boy, do we have a show for you today. There's a lot of news going on, but frankly, I'm going to get through the news pretty quickly because, boy, do we have a guest for you. You know, it was 30 years ago and about a week or two (laughs) that Anita Hill testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee in the confirmation hearing for then Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas. Oh, if we only had the benefit of hindsight when these things take place. But we knew all we needed to know about Clarence Thomas by listening to Anita Hill's testimony. Some things never change. Anyway, Anita Hill has a new book out. It's called Believing, and stay tuned because we have a conversation for you. We'll talk about everything from what happened 30 years ago to the deja vu she experienced in 2018 when Christine Blasey Ford testified at Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing and and everything in between. So stick around for that. But as usual, we'll start with a bit of news. And what we're going to start with isn't very good. In fact, it's kind of frightening. Considering the makeup of the Supreme Court right now, this news isn't surprising, but it is disturbing. The Supreme Court declined for a second time to temporarily halt the new Texas law that bans abortions as early as six weeks and encourages private citizens who have nothing to do with each particular case to enforce the law by filing lawsuits against anyone who might in any way help a woman who is seeking an abortion. It could be the Uber driver who takes her to a clinic, really. But the Supreme Court did say they'll hear the case and they agreed to expedite it and hear arguments November 1st. 
That's just like a week and a half away. Justice Sonia Sotomayor released a partial dissent, arguing that the court should block this law while it considers the issues involved. You think? As expected, the House of Representatives voted Thursday to hold longtime Trump ally and aide to the former guy, Steve Bannon, in contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena from the committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Nine Republicans joined all of the Democrats for a final 229 to 202 vote. The referral goes to the Justice Department, where Attorney General Merrick Garland decides what happens next. Meanwhile, the House Judiciary Committee on Thursday questioned the Attorney General for the very first time since he took this position. Republicans grilled him on the Bannon vote and his plans to communicate with the FBI about parents' threats against school officials. Democrats pressed Garland on civil rights matters, including police misconduct and violence in prisons. But it was Congressman Steve Cohen of Tennessee who asked the question. He pointed out that Michael Cohen, the former guy's former fixer and attorney, was convicted for merely doing what Trump as individual one ordered him to do, then basically asked why the former guy hadn't yet been indicted. When Garland replied that in order to protect everyone involved, the DOJ doesn't comment on the status of investigations unless there's a public charge, Cohen replied, I will accept that, but I hope that you will look at it because I believe that he is equally, if not more guilty, and it does seem that people get favored treatment if he does not get, if he's not prosecuted. Please. President Joe Biden answered questions Thursday night at a CNN town hall when asked if a deal on the big two-part Build Back Better plan is going to happen. The president was cautiously optimistic. Are you close to a done deal? No, no problems. All done. <laughs> no, look, uh, Anderson, we've been, uh, I've probably spent well over 100 hours. This is, a, this, this is a big deal. Bottom line, do you think you will get a deal? I do think I'll get a deal. Punchbowl News reporting Friday morning that the White House has been pressing the Democratic leadership to move toward a House vote next week on both the reconciliation package and the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill. Will they get there? It sounds like they're still pretty far apart. And by they, I mean Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema versus the rest of the Democratic Party. She says she will not raise a single penny in taxes on the corporate side and or on wealthy people, period. And so that's where it sort of breaks down. There's a few other issues it breaks down on. But what we're trying to do is reach a point here where I'm able to present to the Senate, they're able to vote on, and the House, a serious, serious piece of legislation that changes the dynamic for working-class folks in America and middle-class folks and begins to have the very wealthy and corporate members just begin to pay their fair share. Not a lot. How we get there, we're down to four or five issues, which I'm not going to negotiate on national television, as you might guess. We'd be interested in hearing them if you want. No, I know. But all kidding aside, I think we can get there. Although Manchin and Cinema are opposed to different parts of the bill, she did join him in opposing expanding Medicare to cover vision, hearing, and dental. Though Biden did say she likes the idea of helping to lower the cost of hearing aids. So we got that going for us. The president spoke plainly and clearly, laying out the facts with little to no self-aggrandizement, admitting some of the disappointments and changes that had to be made in the face of the Manchinima opposition. 
tuition-free community college is out. Biden said the paid leave provision has been trimmed from 12 weeks to four. And the president's clean energy program and climate change mitigation are also apparently out. Well, this isn't in that legislation, but one place where the president appears to have evolved in his position is regarding the filibuster. I also think we're going to have to move to the point where we fundamentally alter the filibuster. Are you saying that you would be open to fundamentally altering the filibuster or or doing away with it? Well, that remains to be seen exactly what that means in terms of fundamentally altering it, <clears throat> whether or not we just end the filibuster straight up. Voting rights you, is equally as consequential. When it comes to voting rights, just so I'm clear, though, you would entertain the notion of doing away with the filibuster on that one issue? Is that correct? And maybe more. And maybe more? Ooh. And finally, from the Isn't It Ironic files, Donald Trump is again starting his own media company? It includes a social media platform that is going to be called Truth Social? Truth? Really? Well, the other shoe dropped. One of the big investors in the company was not aware of Trump's involvement. Now Financial Times is reporting that upon learning what Truth Social would be, this investor pulled out immediately, allegedly saying, quote, the idea that I would help Trump build out a fake news business called Truth makes me want to throw up. Right there with you, buddy. Right there with you. All right, that's enough news for now because we've got an interview with Anita Hill coming up next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Stick around. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. But when I'm not here, I host the Nicole Sandler Show. It's a daily program similar to this, a little looser, a little more irreverent, perhaps. It's available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And it's also live weekday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 2 Pacific on the Progressive Voices Network at NicoleSandler.com, on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch, and other places, too. And like the broadcast, my show is not behind any paywall. So check it out, enjoy it, share it freely, and do visit NicoleSandler.com for lots more fascinating, free content. Okay, now for the main attraction. I am so honored to be speaking with Anita Hill right now. Anita Hill, of course, a lawyer, a professor, author. Her new book is just out. It's called Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. I'm holding up my copy to the camera, and it's got a lot of uh, post-it notes scattered throughout because I've been, I've been uh, flagging things as I go along. Uh, the book is just fascinating. It's very hard to put down, and it transports us, at least for part of it, back 30 years to 1991 when you testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee at Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court confirmation hearing. To my knowledge, I think you were the first woman to actually speak out publicly in such a manner about gender violence or or sex discrimination. Were you the first? Well, at least on the national level, I think I was the first to speak in front of a, you know, national U.S. uh, panel or committee 
uh, um, there had been, in fact, some hearings in the state of New York uh, that were organized around this issue of of sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, that was even maybe even before there was a really a name for it. It was back in the 70s, and Eleanor Holmes Norton was one of the people behind organizing those. But in terms of the kind of coverage that uh, the 1991 hearings of Clarence Thomas got, I think uh, that it was a singular event. And and as I've come to understand it, it was a pivotal event uh, in terms of the public conversation and understanding of the issues. Without a doubt. Obviously, you bring something that has been ta- had been talked about uh, really kind of in hushed tones, and you put it on for all to see, and all did see. 1991 seems like so long ago, but it was really just the blink of an eye. And, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Fast forward to 2018 and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford testifying at Brett Kavanaugh's Senate uh, Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Did you feel the same butterflies in your stomach when you were watching her? Did you get the same I'm just guessing that you had these visceral reactions, I can only imagine, but did it take you back to that moment? I think, in fact, that there's probably a greater sense of dread that in, in 2018 uh, because I had experienced how things could go very badly. Not only um, were there indications before her testimony that things were going to go badly, and they did. Um, there was no process, no place for her to go to, to file her complaint. She gave her complaint to Senator Feinstein, and then she was criticized, or Feinstein was criticized for taking it. And um, But there was a, a sense of dread about how the process would go. And then finally, what would happen to her afterwards? Because those are all the things that I had gone through um, and I knew that unless that there was a real change in terms of the thinking of the Senate leadership, the leadership in this in this in 2018, it was term Chairman Grassley, but Grassley had been on the committee in 1991 as well. Wow! And so I knew that there was a slim chance that she might be able to get a fair process but that the odds were that she wouldn't and that people would how people would respond to the outcome um it wasn't clear either right uh, right but it, obviously attitudes have changed over the last 30 years um in 2018 i'm trying to remember and put myself back there the me too movement had already begun right people started talking about women started talking about uh not only women uh, others have been sexually harassed as well but it's yeah, it's mostly women i think um had been talking about it and there were some consequences already happening but did you expect any kind of a different outcome or did you know deep down that she was going to get the same kind of treatment you had? You know, I'm ever hopeful um, that outcomes can change that people can see and really understand. I mean, uh, that, that these are serious charges uh, and that when particularly they're important when we're talking about people who are in a position or consideration to be, on the highest court in the country uh, for a lifetime appointment, by the way. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, of course, um, I was hopeful because I have seen the change. I know that, in fact, we are more knowledgeable about the behavior. Uh, Me Too had just happened the year before, and Mm -hmm. I know what kind of a reckoning that we expected from me too and 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 really a, a sense of where people really did for the first time see that this is a real problem it's a pervasive problem and uh, the whole range of behaviors uh, and how they've infiltrated just about every institution that we have make it clear that it's a problem that's not going to go away it's pervasive it's built into our systems and, and, and supported by our culture and that we need to begin to address it. Uh, that was the part that made me hopeful, this mm. new awareness. Um, but that was balanced against the traditions of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, the willingness for uh, politicians to uh, really challenge as politicians of the same party to challenge uh, a sitting president who really uh, had control of the whole process. Right. Uh, We're speaking with Anita Hill and the book uh, again is believing our 30 year journey to end gender violence, believing the title. um, One could take it in a different, in different ways. Is it a directive or is it, identifying the problem or is it something else well it it for me came from hearing from over the past 30 years now of thousands uh, of stories hearing thousands of stories victims and survivors uh, from all walks of life all races all genders uh, and really believing myself that they deserve better, mm-hmm. that we all deserve better. Not just, you know, we talk about the Senate Judiciary Committee, but the Senate Judiciary Committee's process and treatment was really a reflection of what many of us face uh, when we raise complaints about sexual or, or other forms of gender violence. And so that is, I, I have spent my uh, past 30 years or so believing that we deserve better, uh, that our families deserve better, our colleagues who try to support us deserve better, um, that our institutions deserve better, and, and that that we can do better, that as a country we can do better. Uh, and part of that comes from uh, the gains that we have made in the public but also a realization that we haven't gone far enough. You know, the, the, you said earlier, I think something like the more we learn, the yeah. more we, the, we, we realize how, how much we have to learn. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's exactly where we are. It's like once you begin awareness, you realize how huge the problem is, um, that it, it doesn't begin in the workplace. It doesn't begin among adults. It, it really even begins in our schools. Our, our elementary, middle, and and high school. Sure. And so we've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> we've made some gains, but we're not there yet. There are some things we can do, and I believe in those things. 
Like what? Should we save that for the end? <laughs> because there's yeah. got to be solutions. And I know this is your goal in writing this book. In fact, you lay them out in the introduction. What What are your goals for the book? Well, my one, I, I want to, I want the voices of survivors and victims to be heard. I want I want them to be centered in this conversation. Very often when we hear conversations about allegations that are raised, they be, they almost always begin with, well, how is this going to hurt the career of the powerful person who is being accused? Wow. Um, and that, so, so often that's where the conversation starts. And I want the conversation about this problem to start with the survivors and the victims. That's where I want it to start. And how can we address them? So I want us to change the way we talk. I want us to stop telling, you know, school children, girls, for example, when, when they've been harassed or bullied or teased as they're reaching adolescents about their bodies, whether they're classmates or men, grown men on the street, as that often happens, that, that stop telling them that that behavior is not so bad or right. that's just what boys do or <laughs> that's what men do and so they have to tolerate it um, I want us uh, to stop denying the existence of this problem uh, we've had well high place commentary that basically says you know that well it's not a major problem or women are still making up these stories um, to get ahead or for some political or social advantage um, uh, around victimhood. And I want, then finally, I want us to stop denying it. And, th and there is a form of denial that happens when we st blame victims. Um, intimate partner violence is one of those areas where we blame women who are in abusive relationships because we, you know, say things, well, why doesn't she just, if she would just leave, right. Things would be fine, um, and so we have, we have to address the culture. But I also want want people uh, not only to change their own way of thinking and talking about this problem and ex and quit accepting those denials and dismissive excuses. I, I want them to challenge our leaders because one thing we know about change, organizational change, is that it starts at the top, hmm. and if we have leaders who acknowledge the problem and commit and put resources into making solutions a priority, then we can move people. Um, and that can be our role. Um, instead of placing all of that burden on victims who have already been the subjects of abuse. Right. Um, so it, it and, and then we can start to work on the systems, the In systems and structures that are holding our progress back. Right. You know, there are so many different directions I can go just listening to you. It, it brings up a lot of different questions. But I got to ask if you've either read the book or seen the new Netflix series called Made, because this is what you're writing about. In fact, I binged it. I think it's 10 episodes. And it's a story written by a woman named Stephanie Land. And she was a, a young mother um, who wound up leaving her abusive husband, and it she she embodies exactly the story you're telling. And I binged it a couple of weeks ago, and then I started reading your book, and I had this light bulb moment. It's like, oh my god, these two go together. 
it's pretty, if you haven't checked it out yet, you should, because it, this is your story, what you're fighting against brought to life. Um, this woman, people don't believe her. And why didn't she just leave? And the, and the husband or the father of her daughter wasn't physically abusive, didn't hit her, but he was abusive. And it shows that there are so many different levels of uh, gender-based violence. Yes, and, and I, I wish I had had the benefit of the program when I was writing this book because I try to use examples from pop culture, uh, but I also try to use real stories mm-hmm. of people to really make the point because sometimes it, you have to have examples. because You can tell people and they don't quite get it until they see it acted out. So I'm thankful for those um, those very few, relatively few stories that actually do portray the problem um, clearly yes. and accurately. You know, but the, 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 your other point is that, you know, there are questions about when I talk about harassment and bullying and, um, and, and then I put this into the bigger category of gender violence along with sexual assault um, and rape and intimate partner violence. And in, in the case, really, I talk about some partners who have been killed, uh, women who have been killed by their partners. You know, people say, well, how can you put all of that stuff together? And I think it's exactly what you point out, is that we have this very narrow definition of violence. Uh, and, and maybe the better word is very different narrow definition of what it means to be violated and it doesn't often include the emotional violence and I think that's another area that we need to grow in Uh, when a person is uh, on a job and they're being harassed or their attempts to extort them for sex there's no physical violence but there is an emotional violence and assault and um, and a, a sense of intimidation um, that they could lose their job, they could lose their livelihood uh, because they are not complying with the wishes of a more powerful individual. And they know how that only not only can hurt with that particular job, but with other jobs in the future. And the same um, with a, a situation where somebody is being abused by their partner, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people will uh, definitely try to excuse emotional violence. Well, maybe I just had a bad day, or maybe there was something that you said that set him off. Um, and we don't take into account that all over the globe, one, they're starting to acknowledge these different types of violence or violations and two that it's really time for us to think about what safety means to its fullest extent that what we are trying to do is to make sure that people have their own agency and their own authority they are not in a relationship where they're manipulated or abused whether it's physical or emotional, or psychological, or economic. Mm-hmm. And it's all of those. All of those fall under that heading of abuse. Uh, and so, Absolutely. And, right. But we don't quite all understand that. I mean, that's, 
that's one of the levels of awareness that we haven't quite grasped uh, because uh, because we've been taught and, and programmed to think uh, if there is abuse, that there are going to be bruises and right. marks. Um, and that is very often not the case. No. And, you know, um, knowing that I was going to be speaking with you today, uh, I went back and watched some of the your your testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee at Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearing. I watched your opening statement, which was brilliant and courageous. And then I watched I watched some of the questioning. There are a number of um, uh, montages put together by various news outlets about the most offensive questioning you got. A a little while ago, you referred to something like, oh, it's not so bad. Well, Arlen Specter used that line on you a few times, um, discussing things that really were bad. Did you feel that you were being assaulted uh, in that moment again? Like the way way you were treated by this panel of white men, and that's all that was on that panel who were questioning you? Well, I I just felt like Either he was deliberately trying to reduce me and my significance, or he was just oblivious to what women go through. Um, Whether he, either way, it didn't matter. It was entirely offensive, and again, a way that we uh, re-traumatize people when they tell us their stories. Right. That, um, in fact, it is the second assault. Um, And so, and then there's one other thing that really, and sort of in the universal interpretation of what was going on, and that is that he dared to assert his authority over my experience. And how it felt, uh-huh. and and that he could define what was good or bad for me, that I had no right to define it for myself, and that I think is the the part that is really hurting us is that we don't give women, especially women as victims, um, the right to have authority over their own experiences, to be an authority on their own experiences. We, uh, we, you know, we allow powerful men to, to take control of that and define what is good or bad for us. And that's part of the cultural problem that we have. Uh, and it, what it leads then to is that in case of accusations against powerful people, then men's words are taken. Um, One of the most perverse examples of that is the situation involving Larry Nasser, who was abusing children for decades, uh, who was reported to the FBI by the Olympic gymnasts who spoke last month uh, to Congress about their experience with this FBI agent. Um, who they told they were being abused. Um, and and as according to one of the gymnasts, he, the agent seemed entirely indifferent 
upon hearing how as a 13 year old, uh, Larry had, Larry Nasser had assaulted her, um, who then the agent took the statement and did nothing with it in any respect, didn't follow up, didn't investigate. And and what happened after that was Larry Nasser was able to uh, abuse as many as 70 to 100 others. So this is why this this tendency to substitute uh, a, a male, a powerful male perspective for the perspective of victims is so dangerous. It not only hurts the people who are reporting, but it sets up the abuser for continued abuse, and, right. and in this case, multiple abuses. And but it but it even gets worse because after those four of these gymnasts testified uh before the Senate uh, what not even a month ago maybe um and they talked about these FBI agents and their coldness and the lack of follow through um we find out that nothing is going to be done to these FBI agents who did nothing uh, to protect these young girls, to these w- young women, nothing that their that that their behavior was just allowed to go. That I, I found that appalling. Well, absolutely, and that is sort of the next step. Not only are, are the the is the definition of what is abuse defined in their terms that gets built into the processes. Their judgment, their decisions get built into the process, and and they're allowed the discretion to abandon uh, claims, abandon these victims without any repercussions. Now, I do understand um, from a report that I saw recently that they are reconsidering whether to bring charges. Oh against these two agents that really just completely spectacularly failed uh, everyone, not only the women who testified, but those who came afterwards. Um, But I don't know what that process is. I don't know what their standards are for holding those people accountable for that failure. Uh, and that's what I say, you know, our structures then get the bias against victims built into them. And, and then you end up with this, these horrific outcomes with, and, and seemingly no recourse. Right. Um, but I'm hopeful that something will be done. And if it doesn't involve these, these agents, that the rules get changed so that if this ever does happen again, that people are on notice that they will be held accountable. Oh, yes. Well, there's got to be consequences for this behavior. Anita Hill is my guest today. Wow. I hope you're enjoying this nearly as much as I am. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. We're back. 
Nicole Sandler here, and for Brad and Desi today on the broadcast. Anita Hill is our guest, and I'm I'm so honored to have you here. And I've got a million questions for you, and I hope you don't mind. I want to go back for a moment to to the 1991 testimony, um, and and Joe Biden, who is now president of the United States. I thought his treatment of you was reprehensible, as were as it was for pretty much everyone on that panel. And even in the little snippets that I watched this morning, I you see him. publicly doubting your veracity, calling into question, you know, if you're telling the truth or not. Um, In the book, uh, you get to the end, near the end of the book, around page 285, and you talk about, in the election, um, toward the end of the election, Joe Biden is already the nominee, and a woman named Tara Reid comes forth with charges of uh, pretty horrible sexual harassment, sexual abuse charges against Joe Biden. Um, you say you don't, you don't, you say that her case, that there should have been an investigation there, as there should have been of Brett Kavanaugh after the allegations raised by Christine Blasey Ford. This is a still a big problem we have where women's allegations are not taken seriously. In both these cases, you think there should have been full investigations? Absolutely. I mean, I said so at the time uh, when uh, Tara Reid came forward. I said, we've got to have a way to investigate this problem. Not yeah. only is this to, to, to benefit uh, Tara Reid to, out of respect for her coming forward to raise these complaints, but also, you know, for the public. You know, we're talking about people who are uh, public figures who are making decisions about all of us, who are representing our government, and 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 representing all of the people in it, we we public deserves more. They need to have an understanding of the truth. Now, I've do since then think that um, in terms of we have an example now for a, a how we can begin those processes uh, with the investigation into uh, Andrew Cuomo and the charges that were brought against him, that we had yes. an attorney general who went through the process and interviewed the witnesses, did an investigation. If you read, there's a, a long report on how they went about it. Um, she was very clear about which where she landed in terms of evidence that she found from both sides were allowed to testify. Um, she uh, came up with a conclusion. Uh, there was an outcome. I don't think that she dictated the outcome. He uh, Cuomo originally or initially held out, but then uh, then went on to resign. So there was an outcome, there was a sense of accountability, there was an understanding of the public, how decisions were reached. Um, and I think the public was better served. I think it cut back on a whole lot of the conversation about, well, we don't really have the evidence, or, you know, it's just the he said, she said. Right. I mean, there was a record provided. There's a there's a reason that we need to have these processes in place because the public deserves to know individuals who have complaints deserve to know how they're going to be treated. And, 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 you know, we all benefit when it's done well. 
It doesn't mean that there's not going to be accountability or that, you know, the outcome is going to be that the governor or the public person resigns. Um, we don't know what the outcomes will be, but we do know that we deserve at least a process that allows for truth finding. Yes. Oh, without a doubt. Now, um, with Joe Biden, I know that he famously, finally, after a big fanfare, apologized to you, um, where you say, you know, he could have just picked up the phone and done it rather than have this whole orchestrated dance in place. Uh, were you satisfied with his apology? Do you think he knows what they did wrong? Do you think he's changed in attitude over the years? Well, in terms of the apology, it was it was limited. It was limited to a an apology for his management or mismanagement of the hearing process. Mm-hmm. Uh, personal apology to me. That's one part of the problem. The the harm that was done to me during the hearing, the the the, the way the questioning unfolded. And as you remarked, the indications and the way things that were said, indications that I was not being truthful. Right. Uh, And some of came from other people without any challenges. The fact that he didn't call witnesses to corroborate, I mean, that's an apology for the process. There was no apology to that fit the entire harm. The entire harm of that process didn't begin or end with me. No. It ended with, you know, with people all over the country losing confidence and trust in our processes. It ended in victims who might have had claims not coming forward because they realized that the process was either going to eat them up or it wasn't going to take them seriously when they stepped up. I mean, it ended with people believing that we have on the Supreme Court and now two justices that do not belong there. And as I've said in describing the Cuomo process, much of that could have been alleviated had there been a better, fairer process that took the claim seriously and had a way for them to be heard and evaluated outside the political decision of of uh, of who was going to be on the Supreme Court, or in in the case of Joe Biden, uh, who should be sitting uh, in the White House. Yeah, when you look at who was in the White House. Um, uh, for instance, when Christine Blasey Ford testified, it, I felt like I was through the looking glass. Um, That is a whole other thing. We had a president who was a serial sexual harasser, sexual assaulter. There are are charges out there that hopefully he will have to answer to. Um, But then I go back to to Christine Blasey Ford, who was also treated horrendously. And I I know you felt nervous for her. You got, you had the sense of dread. Um, You've spoken with her since. How is she doing? Do we know? And she, she, she and I spoke on a podcast. Uh, it was the first time, well, it wasn't the first time that I've been in touch with her, but it was the first time that I was able to sit down and have a real conversation. 
you know, in that conversation, I was really talking to her as someone who had gone through an experience much like what she'd gone through, not only the confusion and chaos before and during the hearing, um, uh, the Kavanaugh hearing, that matched mine as well um, during the Thomas hearing, but also for the horrific behavior that got piled onto her and her family afterwards. Yeah. And that, um, you know, that was really what the conversation was about, is how it was about how are you doing and, and really an assurance that things would get better. Um, I believe she has started to work through what happened. Uh, it's not easy. It takes time. Um, but I think some of the vitriol could have been eliminated Hmm. had it, the process had our leader stepped up and, and defended her right to come forward (laughs) as strongly as they had defended, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Right. Yeah, well, that obviously didn't happen, and Brett Kavanaugh is sitting and, on the and Supreme certainly Court. Certainly, the president would would do never so, do that. Please. No, in fact, we've seen what he does, and he'll he'll attack, you know, the victim. That's his mo. It's it's astounding and sickening. So that brings us to the question that I sort of and put off the at the beginning. I mean, the, the former, the, the guy. former president Trump. <laughs> yes, exactly, the former guy. Um, so, Professor Hill, what do we do? How do we address? the the epidemic the pandemic of gender-based violence because it is in every aspect of our society uh try as we might to say oh we've we've evolved in many cases we haven't so how how do we respond what do we do from here and and how are you addressing this i know this has become your focus right now well and to that point you know i wanted to say you president biden when i spoke and i spoke and he talked about Violence Against Women Act, which he supported. Mm-hmm. And he talked about the campus um, sexual assault campaign against campus sexual assault that he was very much engaged in. He talked about his own evolution. And yet the problem exists. Right. And yet the problem exists. And seemingly endlessly throughout our different institutions. So first of all, we've got to acknowledge and, and it includes the president, includes all of us, that we haven't gone far enough because the problem still exists. Right. So we haven't gone far enough. Admit that this problem is deep and it's complex and that it's going to take changes in our own behavior, like I had described earlier about how we, uh, the, how we talk to and talk about victims and survivors. Uh, it's going to take changes in our systems, uh, the policies and practices. I mean, we, we talked about non-disclosure agreements and forced arbitration right. of these claims that, that really leave institutions pretty much in the same place and, and victims who bring claims dissatisfied in many cases. We, but that's just, those are just two minor things. I'm talking about entire structural change that needs to take place. 
And we and that requires our leaders to act. It requires our leaders to act, but we've got to push them. Yes. We've got to push them and, and when we're talking when we're talking to candidates who are going to lead the country, we need to make sure that they have a have prioritized this issue. We need to make it part of campaign conversations, whether we're media people or citizens who stand up in a town hall and ask questions. We've got to be more proactive. But ultimately, it is up to our leaders, our president of the United States, the president of our large corporations, the presidents, the CEOs who are operating them, um, the heads of our military adjusting now to the new rules that are being put forward to eliminate the problem there. Um, all of they are the ones who have the power to make things change. Even down to the principals of our schools, um, the principals and school superintendents in school districts, mm-hmm. they have the power to change what is going on in their institutions. And we've got to have um, policing that understands this issue and and uh, addresses this. You know, the abysmal rate of of uh, or the number of sexual assault and rapes that actually go to a DA and right. then it's so low. ultimately gets heard by a jury is just abysmally low. I mean, it's it, it, it's it's stunning, uh, and and no other crime that I know of has such a low rate of prosecution as as sexual assault and rape. Uh, we need to address that. And if police forces don't address it, then our Justice Department needs to address it. Mm. So, um, so my, my, first of all, we got to acknowledge that we have a pervasive problem that's cultural, that's endemic, and that it's not going to go away on its own unless we take aggressive measures. We secondly have to prioritize them. Um, and, and then where I started at the beginning is that we have to put survivors and victims in the process um, look to them for their guidance and their solutions because they do understand this in a way that needs to be put into the solutions that we we come to come up with um, now that I know that's just sort of at the high level are there some specific things we can do the federal government uh, the president can, uh, can, in looking with and assessing and gathering information, we need more data. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can call upon every cabinet, every cabinet agency to address specifically within their agency, one, how they are going to help victims directly, and two, what are the processes within their agencies and in the institutions that they have control over, whether we're talking about housing, whether we're talking uh, about labor, um, where, where are the processes? What are they that are holding us back from eliminating this, process, this problem? So there's a lot that can be done. I mean, and there, it's a lot of heavy lifting. This is like boiling the ocean right. because it is so complicated. But if, if we say that 
our go- it's too big for our government to fix, then we have to really address whether we have the right government. <laughs> Well, in many time, many cases, we don't. And if the last four years set us back enormously, I mean, just look at Betsy DeVos as Secretary of Education and what she did about the problems of sexual assault on campus. I mean, the fact that there's enough of people in this country who will vote for that is is astounding and depressing. We need to get past that. Um, and we do. And I think one of the things that is popular now when when we talk about how we're going to do that, especially around college uh, colleges, is is the question about due process. Mm. We do have due process protection in our systems, uh, but what that typically what people don't understand is that having due process doesn't mean that you get to silence people, that you prevent people from talking about Mm -hmm. what has happened to them, about their own personal experiences. We do need to protect the rights of the people who are being accused. You know, as a lawyer, you know, and and as a person of of African-American, an African-American, a person of African descent, I know how uh, unfair the law has been to people and in denying due process. I, I would never advocate for a system that neglected due process for everyone. But what we also have to understand is that we are at this point have systems uh, and start, some of those were put in place under DeVos uh, where the balance has tipped the other way. Mm-hmm. that all of the protections seem to be going in the direction of, again, pre- uh, com- uh, covering um, for bad behavior yeah. and few of the consequences for engaging in that bad behavior um, continue um, to apply. And so where is the balance? We have hard, we have, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, but we do, you know, I respect due process as well, but due process can't mean what we have seen in terms of even the prosecution of of rape cases where, again, this low, low rate of going forward uh, and representing the people's best interest in criminal cases by pursuing these these the claims that come in and taking people who are often serial rapists off the streets. I hear you. It 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 it, it things need to change. Your voice will certainly help that, Anita Hill. Um, I speak for so every woman I know in thanking you for your courage coming forward thirty years ago and for continuing the fight. I know you the book is out. It's called Believing Our Thirty Year Journey to End Gender Violence. I can't recommend it highly enough. And you've got a podcast coming. I do. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to explore many of these issues that uh, are raised in believing. We're going to talk a little bit about my life because. 
I think people still think that uh, I was born in 1991 and, <laughs> right. and then I disappeared from the face of the earth. <laughs> I came back in, in 2021. But uh, so I want to, uh, you know, again, I want to humanize myself as uh, as I'm trying to humanize many of the victims and survivors. But it, it's a, it is also very clearly a podcast that's dedicated to solving problems, to getting to a real sense of equity in in society. And um, and I get to talk to people who are moving us in that direction in big and dynamic ways. Wonderful. And this is going to start in 2022? 2022 will be the launch. Terrific. Well, I'll make sure, uh, hopefully you'll keep me in po- informed and I will uh, make sure the listeners know. Uh, this has been such an honor and a pleasure for me. Anita Hill, I could keep talking for hours, but I know you've got other things to do. I can't yeah, thank you enough. Uh, I, I am so grateful for the time you've given me. And thank you for all of your work in these podcasts. They, they really are powerful. Thank you so, so very much. Take care. You Bye. too. Bye-bye. What a treat that was. Anita Hill. What an amazing woman. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the broadcast. Brad and Desi will be back for the next one. Until then, I'm Nicole Sandler, echoing Brad. As I say, good luck, world. We really need it. <laughs>